Hello, and welcome to the Baba Yaga Project. The Baba Yaga Project is a podcast and blog that focuses on the ritualized year, folklore, and history, lovingly researched and recorded by your hosts, Margot and Sonia. Hi, my name is Margot, and I have a master's degree in American history with a focus on Indigenous studies. And I'm Sonia, and I'm doing a PhD in medieval history. All right. Hello, and welcome to the Baba Yaga Project. Hi. This week, we are looking at married life. We've been talking about courtship, about weddings, and now we are going to discuss how people in the past settled into this new stage of their life where they were living together with their spouse. As per usual, I'm going to start it off with the pre-modern period, and then we're going to hand it over to Margot to take it away in the quote-unquote new world. So, as per usual, we will start with uh, antiquity, which, as we've discussed before, I'm going to just have to skim over real fast, because for the most part, it was just, you know, a quite young bride moving in with her groom into his parents' house. So, you know, settling into that routine wasn't necessarily um, super different than what they'd been doing before, just in, you know, you just kind of became absorbed into this household. But we start seeing a lot of changes to this in the Middle Ages, because as we've talked about before, that is when we start to see more and more, at least in Europe, and especially in Western Europe, people moving into their own homes as soon as they get married. So you're not sort of being absorbed into this larger family structure. And as we've spoken about before, this meant that the average ages of marriage went up in these areas because, you know, you couldn't be a a, a very, very, very young person running a house all by yourself. So the average age of first marriage was tended to hover around the 20s. Um, And for a lot of women, about 10% never actually married at all, either because they were in convents or because they were spinsters, quote-unquote, which we'll be talking about in a later episode about people who never married. But For now, we're just going to focus on the roughly 90% who did. Now, as we've talked about previously, people were pretty free to choose their own spouses, especially if you weren't as socioeconomically high on the, uh, the food chain, if you will. So, for the most part, people were having something resembling a companionship in their marriage. You know, that's not to say that, you know, wealth and land and money and power and social climbing didn't come into it at all. It absolutely did. But for a lot of people, you were choosing your spouse based on if you two were going to get along, if you liked spending time together, if you could, you know, have a good partnership. That sounds good. That's what I want. Same, you know, it's a pretty good, pretty good basis, because I think in the Middle Ages and then especially as we get into the early modern period, we start seeing more and more this idea of the family being this, you know, 
building block of society that if you have you know stability and order within each individual home then broader society will also be stable and functional yeah that's really big in early modern especially um with like the especially in like colonial societies so like in the new world uh in like habitant france but like sorry habitat quebec um and in like the puritan societies in new england that is like how all of society is structured especially in puritan new england because you have the family that's headed by the patriarch and then you have the church that's headed by the pastor and that's supposed to be like the governing for that area and then like eventually that would reach out to like the colony and then the like larger empire yeah that's how all that's supposed to work yeah and i mean we see kind of inklings of this beginning in the middle ages and it just kind of keeps picking up speed into the early modern period um you know there's obviously especially in the middle ages many other forms of social controls because you you know have the church the capital c church you know uh, running like the religious aspect of life for most people um and of course you have you know the rigid like aristocracy and nobility and like it is the lord says we have to do this so that's what happens and like that you know it's also on on these people who are in positions of authority are supposed to use that authority to keep order in society but more and more we do see also this idea of you know you want a harmonious home because harmonious families in harmonious homes make for you know orderly well-structured communities. So what exactly did a well-ordered home look like at the time? Well, basically we have gender roles where in this kind of ideal, idealized version of what marriage was going to look like, husbands and wives were supposed to slot neatly into their assigned gender roles because it's both natural and also divinely ordained that the husband is supposed to lead the family and the wife is supposed to, you know, be submissive to him and, you know, kind of take on that secondary role. However, the husband was also theoretically supposed to provide for the family, be her friend, foster partnership and also guide her spiritually because as we all know women are the weaker vessel and can be easily led astray by satan <laughs> sorry it's like no, <laughs> no comment there i mean i haven't personally been led astray by satan but am i saying i saw goody margo dancing with the devil am i saying that i wouldn't follow him astray <laughs> now here's the thing though because we do have these you know uh sermons we have advice manuals for husbands and wives right that lay this all out right where 
the husband is supposed to be this protector and provider and like guide her towards spirituality but also be this like gentle like guiding her gently towards this and the woman is supposed to be submissive and like obedient and listen to what he says and do her part to raise the children and support him uh but that's not really the reality from what we can see it seems that the reality especially towards the later middle ages and into the early modern period would have been a lot more of a privately and in reality you had a more companionship based marriage but the public marriage would give the appearance of female subordination so i'm going to unpack that real quick so basically marriage at this point is an economic partnership right like you have all this all these things saying ah yes like it's the husband's job to provide however wives unless they were like unless you were in a wealthy family where yes i will say the woman of the house would be relatively idle and probably would be seen as more of a possession than a partner like she would have still been crucial to running the home but she would be also seen as kind of an ornamental possession if you're like you know in the nobility and aristocracy where that is my goal i want to be an ornamental possession honestly valid but you know for the vast 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 majority of married women this would have been an economic partnership where she would also be contributing to the household economically both by making clothes tending a garden so that they had vegetables to eat milking cows collecting eggs from chickens like making cheese and butter and making all the bed linens making all kinds of different preserves so that the food well not preserves as we would think of them but like preserving food for the winter like that sort of thing and they would also often do things like spinning cloth for local uh, manufacturer there might be some casual labor that's seasonal right like she might put in some side work to do harvesting or haymaking or weeding taking in washing uh, she might keep an alehouse she might sell eggs at the market so a lot of the time you know there isn't like economically and i think we've talked about this before women in like non-aristocratic households would not have been like exclusively dependent on their husband like they would have also been contributing economically which gives you a certain level like level of power within the household because you aren't just like a possession that has been bought from your father and then is supposed to just produce heirs like you are also bringing in some of the only cash the family will have because your husband will be working in the fields and yeah he's going to get like you know he can keep a certain amount of the grain and he might be paid but like the you know the the more steady like cash in hand that you're going to have is probably coming from the wife selling beer or eggs or you know piecework that she's done by sewing and that kind of thing right so you know behind the scenes you do have this situation where the woman like the wife is running the household making a lot of these decisions and is also economically active but publicly because a respectable 
family life meant that, you know, you're supposed to have the husband who leads and the wife who follows, you had to put on that certain amount of behavior publicly, right? So we see this kind of discrepancy played out when you look at, like, you know, we see things like this both in people writing at the time, like letters, diaries, that sort of thing, but also, you know, court cases and what sort of things come to light because we have a lot of court cases of people you know p particularly if you were lower class or even like that beginning middle class of you know husbands and wives getting into these disputes and then they go to court over it because going to court then was like very different than now you didn't need a lawyer really you just like show up and it seems like from from what we can find in both the court rec like any documentary stuff it seems like for the most part women in the upper classes were pretty submissive and they didn't have these like going to court <laughs> with their husbands versus yeah like the kind of regular schmegular people they were in and out of courts with all kinds of grievances against each other and like um and them having all these disputes does not necessarily mean that they had like a worse marriage right than nobility and aristocracy rather when you look at it it's like oh okay so these common women were in a position where they could file grievances where you know there are things written down about them going back and forth with their husbands as compared to women who were wealthier where they basically just had to do whatever they were told and they aren't doing this yeah, that seems to be, like, the sort of standard throughout a lot of history is that these ideals of gender roles or ideals of, like, sort of any familial role or societal role is really only truly enacted in the, like, owning classes or the political classes. And when you take, like money and political power out of the equation like individual political power out of the equation then sort of regardless of what societal ideals you might have it is more egalitarian in like the the working class um i know this is definitely true for the 19th century and for most early modern periods and especially is true uh if you look at colonies versus metropoles because like if you look at um early north america and the colonial societies the freedoms that women had to act legally and to act in place of their husband or to act you know against their husband in a court um is really exceptional um compared to the metropoles at the time like you know when we look at boston versus london or montreal versus uh well for most of it again london but or paris you know either one of those um the the freedom that european descendant women in north america had is like radically different from their old country counterparts. Yeah, like there's definitely 
you know, the further removed you are from these centers of, you know, power and control generally, it seems like the more, um, the more relaxed a lot of these standards become, basically, we shall say. Um, but yeah, so I think the other thing we need to talk about is this idea of, you know, okay, what exactly are people going into courts for, for all this stuff that I'm talking about? Well, a lot of it had to do with um, either quarreling between husbands and wives. Um, a lot of the time, especially, it was about women scolding, quote unquote, their husbands, because this was seen as unacceptable behavior, where, you know, you could go to court for it, but again, this just indicates that these common, like, commoner women were just telling off their husbands all the time. And yeah, I mean, you can kick up a fuss and go to court and say, my wife is nagging me all the time. And it's like, okay, well, now at least we have that record that, you know, it, obviously not everyone went to court over this, but enough did that you're like, okay. And the other thing is there was a lot of, um, you know, there would be arguments and stuff between people, you know, as we've talked about before with our insults, right, that women took each other to court a lot because being, you know, if somebody called you stupid or whatever, right? It's like, oh, okay, like I can let that one go. But if women, if ever, if people in the community are questioning your fidelity to your husband, then that is a reason to go to court over. Because if you question a woman's chastity, then that's another thing, right? Is that part of married life is that you are going to be this chaste wife who only has sex with your husband and therefore he knows that the kids are his. Um, so you have these fascinating records where, you know, you like what is essentially defamation cases, and they're mostly brought by women, and most of it has to do with, like, slander around sexuality or someone making, you know, taking other people to court over you know, sexual behavior that you're not supposed to be doing, whether that's sleeping with somebody else or, you know, it, it, it all gets very, very tangled up in, you know, this appearance of, like, sexual immorality, we'll say. Like, it's not necessarily that someone catches you having sex with someone else, but maybe they see you giving food to another man and they go, well, that's a little suspicious. That's not, that That seems a little odd. <laughs> so it's these like court cases where people are tearing this apart. But again, it's just this thing of like, people are fighting with each other and going to court over things, basically. So, so that really like, I mean, we talked about, I talked about this in one of the previous episodes, um, where there is this like weird idea especially uh, in the more like protestant areas um and the like puritans who come to north america really like hit home about this but we were talking about why they didn't want to do collective labor in like early massachusetts and it was like objectively against everyone's interest to not collectivize labor because like so many people were getting sick and like there were food shortages and all of this stuff. And like, if everyone was just caring for everyone, then everybody got to do less work. 
but these like weird ideas around wifely duties and how like everything that a wife would do for her husband or children was inextricably tied to sexual relations is like fascinating to me because like that's why you couldn't like collectivize labor because you couldn't have someone's wife doing someone else's laundry or making someone else dinner because that is like so it's still sexual sexual it's like this weirdly sexualized anything that a wife would do for her husband is tied up in also her having sex with him like it it comes back to what i was talking about earlier with the like they are supposed to go into their appropriate gender roles like when you get married you are both supposed to settle into your assigned gender role and that means for a woman being you know obedient and chaste and also being nurturing and caring so if she is not the person who's doing the 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 cooking and the taking care of the clothes and that sort of thing then it does it 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 brings into question okay is she also not like if if she's not feeding and clothing you is she also you know like out sleeping with somebody else if she's doing someone else's laundry then like clearly she must be having sex with him too so it's this very like it's all like sexuality and gender roles are very very intertwined um the other thing is there was uh arguments and cases brought about men being sexually unfaithful now it was not ruinous the way it was for women uh because you know of course if men sleep around it's fine but if women do it we're terrible but you know i mean who whomst are they sleeping with whom sir are you sleeping with well obviously if a woman has sex with if if a married woman has sex with another man then she's just a terrible person but if a married man has sex with another woman then that woman is just a dirty dirty hoe and it's all her fault anyway there's no winning allowed but again it's just fascinating that like you do have this where it's like, oh, I saw you getting a little handsy with, you know, Goody Proctor over there, so I'm gonna take you to court. Husband, how dare you? So there, there is just this kind of back and forth about what people will, you know, will uh, make public and what they will basically fight over and have these these legal battles over um and the other thing is the other thing i want to talk about before i passed over to margo is domestic violence because you know i think we do tend to have this view of the past of like yes clearly women until like two years ago were just sold in marriage to like not two years ago but you know what i mean that it's like historically like women were just forced into these arranged marriages and then their husband just beat them and was mean to them and was violent towards them all the time and it's like you know as as we've discussed like the reality is women did have choices about who their marriage partner would be they had you know 
the ability to make money in a lot of cases. They had, you know, and, and there were these expectations that a, a, a husband was supposed to be good to his wife. Like, he was not supposed to be, you know, tyrannical and violent and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, it, it was, I think this is something that we forget, that, like, it was unacceptable. Like, that... Uh, okay. That is not to say that there was no violence, and there definitely were... There definitely was a higher tolerance for, like, a man hitting his wife in the past. Definitely. And definitely could use violence to punish her if she did things that he didn't want her doing. I am not trying to skim over that. However, I think we get a lot of that that like, oh yes, that was just the norm and everyone was okay with it. And it's like, realistically, again, that was not the case. It, there, there was a certain tolerance for like a certain level of like low level violence, which no amount of violence is okay. But we also have to remember that these are people living in tight-knit communities. And again, as we've talked about, if there was discord within the home, that means that the rest of society is going to become disordered as well. And like it does affect the rest of the community. So we have, again, these court cases of other people in the community, and especially other women, bringing abusive husbands to court and saying this needs to be dealt with this is unacceptable he is hurting his wife and we can't have that because it's it's hurting her and by extension it's undermining our community because it's making it so that we can't have like this harmonious community that can work together because this person is so out of line um, and I think there. You know, again, there was also, like, people coming to the defense of battered women, like, in the moment, and then who would also testify in court. Um, I will say the solutions that people had at the time were not great because there wasn't really a way to have a divorce or separation. Like, for the most part, you could maybe get out of a marriage to your husband, like, you could get separation or later maybe a divorce if you were in a Protestant country. But even then, you typically had to prove that the, like, you had to prove that there was, like, life-threatening abuse going on. That, like, he was impossible for you to live with and that he was a threat to your safety. Whereas men could get a divorce just for their wives being adulterous. Whereas, you know, the the opposite wasn't true. If a man cheated on his wife, she couldn't just immediately divorce him. She would also have to prove that he was cruel to her and, like, hurt her physically. So, uh, again, I am not trying to say that, you know, there was no domestic violence in the past <laughs> or that, you know, I, I. but I am saying I think that it's very exaggerated, the extent of it. And I think that, you know, in a lot of ways... There were also some protections, even historically, like before, like wife beating even became technically illegal. It, it again, I think we see, you know, like hypothetically, it's not illegal outright for someone for a man to hit his wife, but 
as we're seeing, like as you can see in these court cases that come forward in the late medieval and early modern period, like there was this like community situation of people saying this is unacceptable. We're taking you to court. We are going to, or you have these cases where people just intervene in the moment and go like, nope, not allowed. Like, and we have this all written down where it's you know who came to whose aid and all this kind of thing. So I think that's another thing where we have this idea of people being like super violent and there was no recourse and it's like that's not quite true because there were still these like social norms to kind of keep things a little bit more in line so basically in summary marriages in the past were both more concerned about gender roles than we would perhaps be today but were also less abusive and less rigid about gender and less transactional than I think a lot of us have been led to believe. And I think that there was a lot more companionship within these marriages than we tend to think of, really. And I just think that that's important to remember that, like, what the ideals of a time are do not necessarily... Like, that's not necessarily going to reflect in the actual lived experience. And I mean, I would say, you know, even today, like, we have these ideals of marriage should be an equal partnership, but we see time and time again that, like, statistically, in heterosexual partnerships, women still shoulder most of the burden of housework and childcare. So, you know, I, I think that that's something to keep in mind, that the ideals of an era do not necessarily represent its reality at any point in history. Yeah. Um, so, now for something completely different. <laughs> um, I am going to sort of talk about, so like we talked about what a... I don't really know how to make this transition. Um... Right, we've talked about today sort of what a marriage and like those sort of broader roles would be like um, in sort of like this standard dominant culture where individuals were actively thought of as individuals and whatnot. Um, but there is a large portion of especially North America, a large... <laughs> A large portion of the population who were not thought of as individuals and did not have power over their own lives or bodies or labor or anything. Um, and that would be like the enslaved people of North America brought from Africa. Um, and this is like a, a really sort of interesting part of history is studying um like relationships and emotions and courtship or marriage in enslaved communities uh, for quite a few reasons so a part of it i am going to talk eventually on our in the future in another aspect of the babiaga project um there is some really really cool work to sort of be broken down about how we understand what happened in 
communities, right, like the enslaved communities of the southern U.S. because it is it was not broadly speaking a literate community. Um, so it has more of a vernacular history, which is really interesting. Um, and also like understanding sort of in this like very universal way, like why romantic love, romantic relationships, these ideas of this kind of partnership are so important to humanity because like when, when you look at like the conditions that enslaved people were living under there is a serious question of like why why even bother (laughs) right like it sounds awful but like it was a serious consideration that enslaved people had to make as to whether or not you were going to bother trying to maintain a relationship with somebody when you didn't have control over your own person you didn't have control over where you were going to be if you were going to be able to stay there um if you either of you were not going to be like physically harmed for any reason like um i have a really interesting quote here from um, a formerly enslaved woman named Harriet Jacobs and she says why does the slave ever love why allow the tendrils of the heart to twine around objects which may at any moment be wrenched away by the hand of violence and it's like yeah genuine question and so there is this really interesting way of looking at all of these sort of aspects of maintaining personhood and identity and maintaining relationships and maintaining any sort of like cultural community as a type of uh, what's called passive resistance, um, which is is really interesting. So that's what we're going to be looking at for today. Um, I'm specifically looking um, from texts about North Carolina, um, just so that's the sort of like context in which we're moving forward about. Um, so a a courtship and marriage and relationship as an enslaved person would look radically different from that of a freed person. Um, and we did talk about how it was very complicated for free people of color who were um, marrying enslaved people. We talked about that briefly on one of the earlier podcasts, but um, essentially marriage between enslaved people was at the will of the slaveholders um, and also the laws of the state. So each state had wildly different regulations about the movement of enslaved peoples and even within each state like counties could be different and then of course there was like the various wills of slavers and what kind of movement they allowed for the enslaved people they claimed to own um and so like that in and of itself just the freedom of movement causes issues um so 
there there was a um there is a question right of whether or not um how you decide who to even consider for a relationship so there's a serious question um that a lot of historians are trying to figure out as to whether or not it would it made more sense to try and have a relationship with somebody who lived on your home plantation or like an interplantation relationship um and there's sort of like benefits and drawbacks to each of those situations so um if you did want to get married like be legally recognized as being married um you would need the consent of the slaveholder um and if this was a cross plantation situation then you needed both of those slaveholders and um sometimes for like cultural reasons and like intercommunity reasons um an enslaved man would want to, if he was able to, get the consent of the woman's parents. Um, that was often a big deal as well. The, the reality of a lot of marriages and of a lot of interplantation marriages are that, especially when we're looking at the 19th century, the British Empire outlaws the transportation of slaves across the Atlantic in 1808 in 1808 and that like objectively is not a bad thing but it does cause an issue for slaveholders in maintaining their population of workers and The utter disregard for humanity extends into how uh, they thought about relationships in, like, of their enslaved peoples. Um, so we have these ideas of how, like, the white population thought of enslaved black people. And so, like, there's the hypersexualized versions uh, where they refer to them as, like, oh my god, it's so bad. Okay, where they refer to them as um, Buck and Jezebel. So, right, super dehumanizing um, and essentially just, like, full breeding. And then there's the, like, totally asexualized, like, Sambo and Mammy iconography. Um, and so, like, slavers would think of this as, like, any other sort of, like, livestock situation and would force marriages between people. Often that's how a lot of interplantation marriages happened because it was, like, a way of reproducing a labor force, which is horrifying. Um, and so a lot of, a lot of enslaved people, like, refused to form romantic attachments to anyone because, you know, the, especially during the 19th century, 
the likelihood that you would be forced into a relationship was quite high. Um, and that like your expectations when you were married, especially if you're a woman, was to have a bunch of babies for um, the slaveholder. The other thing that like comes into this is that um, women in particular were less mobile than men. Um, most people who were able to run away from the plantation were between 16 and 35, and by those ages, most women had um, either consensually or forcibly had children, so they were either pregnant breastfeeding or had young children during this time which just makes it a lot harder for you to leave especially because even if you are going like men who had children as well like if they were leaving there was an expectation that the women that you were leaving the children with would do what they could to protect a child right and also i mean yeah, it, it makes sense because, I mean, childbearing and then recovering from childbirth, nursing a child, like, that is very physically demanding. Like, if someone is going to escape, the man would have the better chance, basically, as compared to a woman who had recently given birth or who is currently nursing a child who isn't at that, like, phys like physically able to withstand the the like the yeah like how how difficult that would be physically yeah exactly so this is that's like the really really aggressively depressing part of this um but right so this is a, a horrifyingly dehumanizing situation um just a system that is utterly awful um but if you're living within this system, then any any process that you develop that that reaffirms your humanity is a type of resistance. So there's this really um, intense culture of romantic courtship and sort of rebellious marriages and like systems of maintaining a marriage that are really fascinating and these like really interesting ways of rebelling without necessarily having to like es escape to a free state or something you know because that just it's not feasible for everyone if you were going to um court somebody a lot of it had to be done in secret so especially if you were going between plantations, this is normally the, again, the men who would be moving between the plantation. And like, so if you did have actual permission to marry someone on another plantation, you would at best get to see them once a week. Um, any other time you would have to try and like outsmart patrols, which were these sort of like randomly patrolling like r riding a horse around the enslaved quarters poor white men so this is one of the first this is this is where like police in north america come from but also is one of the main ways that the owning class used race as a way to uh pit 
poor white folks against enslaved blacks so that they wouldn't, um, you know, like, form solidarity of, like, the downtrodden, and then we would have, you know, like, freedom and class warfare. Yeah, so in order to, to, to use race as a way to pit poor white folks against enslaved black folks. Um, they set up these patrols and these white men would ride around looking for enslaved people who are out when they're not supposed to be. Um, they weren't necessarily always like super great at this job. And there, there was, um, because it was sort of random when they would be out, like that was the, their way of like keeping the threat like constantly alive. Like you didn't know when they were going to be out, when the patrol was going to be out. But um, there was a whole system of like secret communication methods that people would come up with um, between couples. So like secret knocks, secret movements, um, pathways, how you would get to and from something. And that really creates like, a, a really strong bond with someone um, and like would often result in like a larger and stronger sort of general community because you would need multiple people assisting in this kind of movement and travel. Um, it also allowed for men who were trying to evade these patrols to position themselves as like a a trickster as um sort of taking back their masculinity and uh physical power over people who were regularly abusive to them um they would do things to sort of undermine the Patrols, like, stretch grapevines across roads to knock them off their horses, um, right when, because it was dark and nighttime and you couldn't see and you get knocked off and injured, um, and that was really popular. Yeah, so the, the main, like, difference of married life is obviously that, like, you could get married and you would have a romantic relationship and children with this spouse but often you would not be able to like right we had our previous episode was called setting up house and that wouldn't necessarily happen or it would happen in this like very fragmented kind of way so because there was such enforced control over every part of enslaved life that and if you were on separate plantations right you couldn't really cohabitate in a way that people who were free would do right you know like you couldn't just like move in with your wife you would have to like come and see her once a week or come and see the her and the kids once a week or like sneak out in the middle of the night to like come and see her on nights that you weren't allowed to leave and things like that and it's there become there's sort of like built into the community then all of these ways to sort of defy that and to build that community that you wanted to so there's a lot of stories in um if you look at the like narratives of um enslaved life that 
stories of people like prepping throughout the week for the one night that they get to spend together. So like that was a night of special meals and of gift giving and of special rituals and this sort of informal economy developed um, amongst the enslaved communities to sort of like support these anything to maintain some sort of like domestic normalcy which obviously is like really hard to do um and it informs a lot of like postbellum uh reconstruction era postbellum reconstruction era um like black culture because the ideas of what people wanted to be able to do when they were enslaved was so deeply steeped into um, now that we're free, now that you can choose something, this is what you should be. So there's like a uh, an extensive culture of um, like folklore stories that show what a house and a family is supposed to look like that become really really popular in the mid 19th century and these roles within a family become really very rigid um and gender roles especially become very rigid post civil war um because people had not been able to have control or to see themselves as you know fulfilling a a, that those roles when they were enslaved right you were stealing moments essentially um and any like willing sexuality or domesticity or like sense of providing for your family was done at great risk and at like a huge expense you know um so it was it was really really difficult and it became like these these ideals that people were wishing for for so so long um and really informed this like immediate postbellum life um and so you see this sudden and very stark shift um with emancipation like into how this setting up and this is one of the things where it's like we can now complicate what we said earlier where we said that like at the you know in these like upper echelons of society is where you see the ideals of, you know, gender roles or whatever being reflected. And when you get out, sort of outside of that power f- dynamic, um, things tend to be more egalitarian. It becomes more complicated because when you look then at recently emancipated people, the gender roles are generally very strict because people had been denied that, had been denied access to a domestic home had been denied access to being able to like be a wife and mother had been denied like the ability to be a husband and father and provider and so it, it was aspirational right so 
like all of these things you know now we talk about like oh strict rigid gender roles but like depending on where you are and and who you are and what choices you are able to make it can be like a much more complicated thing than we think of like anything that is prescribed now you know like it's yeah i mean i think there is that like trauma response and not to take it too far into the future because we just talked about the 19th century here like but so i mean it is this trauma response as well of you know everything was disordered and chaotic and bad but if we have these like rigid rules that we can follow that's going to you know that is supposedly going to make this happy home life and make this like you know correct family then that's what we're going to do and i mean this is obviously a very different context but we see a lot of that post-world war ii as well where like you know you look at the 1920s even the 1930s the early 40s like you see more and more you know women pushing back on gender roles even men pushing back on gender roles right like there's a lot of you know there's a lot more ambiguity there's a lot more allowed for how you want to dress what kind of jobs you can get that kind of thing but post-war like that post-world war ii like you know that that's when we talk about the you know this like 1950s housewife where it's like i am going to wear like a dress with a petticoat and pearls and heels while i vacuum my house and you know the husband yes and it's because she can do that right and like you know, the husband goes to work and he drives his car out of the suburb to go work eight hours a day in his office and then he comes home and his wife has dinner on the table and it's this very, like, rigid gender roles because it, it, it is this, like, trauma response towards, well, everything was chaotic and bad and scary, but if we can, like, make each individual home rigid and orderly and make everyone be in their correct place then things will be okay yeah yeah i mean this is like again for context i'm speaking specifically about the generation immediately post-emancipation um and where like if you are part of an african-american community like a lot of like folkloric tales about like domestic animals right you know like brer rabbit or anything like that like where it's like fables about how a family should operate like that is this is the period where like these sorts of things become like really important to society anyway so yeah it's just uh this really interesting dynamic of like people Of, of literally risking your life, risking your physical body, risking everything to have a little bit more time of some sort of like domestic wedded comfort. Um, and also risking like unbearable heartbreak because there even if you are like legally married as an enslaved person, the state will not recognize that if a slaveholder decides to 
sell one of the spouses or their children or anything else. Like you, the the utter lack of control is unbelievable, and the fact that like anybody still wanted to risk that and maintain that and that there is such an incredible vernacular and oral history that was like maintained meticulously of like family histories um is really really fascinating and i think like points to how important romantic and familial relationships are to everyone and how that these sorts of relationships are like building blocks for the rest of a community because we can see how all of these sort of covert ways of communicating and moving and maintaining information are really built around trying to maintain these relationships but they expand out towards all sorts of information in a whole larger community context um and i think that's really interesting i'm going to talk about it more um in another part of this project um but also everyone should check out uh the book courtship and love amongst the enslaved in north carolina it's really really cool um and just like an awesome testament to the power of love and on that note we will see you all next week when we continue our deep dive into historical life and historical rituals throughout life stages bye-bye thank you for listening to the babiaga project and as always thank you to all our patrons for making this project possible Please follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and her website for the most up-to-date happenings in the project. Also, please consider supporting us on Patreon. It'll really help us continue the project and expand in some really exciting ways. And there's Patreon-exclusive merch! Thanks again, and we'll see you next week!